0: Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you're having a great Black Friday, whether you're darting from store to store in search of discount TVs and die-hard Blu-rays, or if you're sitting at home shaking your head at the entire phenomenon. Either way, let's talk history. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Susan Dawson, a fellow Ohio State alumni and the branch chief historian for the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Customs and Border Protection. Today, we're going to talk about Susan's background, some of the careers in the federal government that are available to historians and her daily life as a government historian. What is your name and what do you do?
1: Um, Hi, uh, my name is Susan Dawson, and I work as a branch chief historian for the Office of Customs and Border Protection. Um, I work in the D.C. area and at the headquarters level, so I I run a, a pretty small staff. We have a small office of three people. I'm the branch historian. We have a historian and a curator, and our office manages the history program for all of customs, all of border protection, and then the component offices within that agency.
0: Okay, cool. And we're going to come back and talk more about that in detail in a little bit. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure.
1: So I went to UCLA for undergraduate and I studied psychology. I I never really thought about history at the time, even though that was my favorite thing. Interestingly enough, I loved history. I loved reading historical novels. I liked fashion history in particular. Um, But I went to school for psychology because I Thought initially I was going to be a psychologist, and uh, I went into uh, public relations. And as it turns out, public relations and psychology go really well together. Uh, but I started volunteering at a museum on the weekends as a costumed interpreter. So what that means is I was I was giving tours in costume, and we did uh, we did presentations at the museum. And I found out that history was a thing you could do as a living, and I did not know that before. So a friend of mine convinced me to look into graduate school, and I ended up deciding to go to graduate school. I had applied for a couple of different places because I wanted to focus on Southern history. So I ended up going to James Madison University in Virginia, mostly because it was a paid program. Honestly, I sound very uh, greedy there, but it was paid and it was two years. And so I figured if I hate it, this is a terminal master's. I will be done. It will be paid for. I will have teaching experience and then I can go from there. But I ended up loving it. And a professor of mine suggested that I go to Ohio State because while I was at JMU, I had started with American history and focused on Southern military history. but I really got into Cold War military history. So I thought that was far more interesting. And he thought I should go to Ohio State because they had such a good military history program Mm -hmm. um, and diplomatic history. And those were the two areas that sort of appealed to me. So I went to Ohio State because, well, primarily because of diplomatic history, actually. So I kind of went back and forth. But uh, my field right now is diplomatic history in the Cold War. And I did a minor field in military history. And Both of those have have come together Really interestingly in my career because I did not think I would be able to work them together. My pet fields are kind of uh, fashion history, military history, and I, I really like diplomatic history. And I was able to combine those in my my dissertation program. So that's where I went to school and I ended up graduating with my PhD in 2009.
0: Really, I this is another astonishing coincidence because I got my PhD from Ohio State in 2011.
1: Oh wow! Oh <laughs> wow! 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 Who was your advisor? If uh, you I had
0: uh, Paula Baker. For Modern New Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah, she's great. Oh
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was with Peter Hahn for, a, for Oh, a, Yeah. Advisor. I, I yeah.
0: did a, a research um assistant gig for him. Uh for uh oh. when was that? I don't remember remember when that was. It was probably around twenty eh, no, I know when it was. It was it was twenty ten, so it must have been right after. Oh UL. funny but um Okay. That's,
1: that's, oh, that's, world. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of us out there, the Buckeyes. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. there's a lot yeah.
1: of us, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's great. well, that's awesome.
0: So, so oh, yeah. you mentioned that you had all these interests kind of coming together for your dissertations. <laughs> what, what was the dissertation on? What was your topic and what, did you, what was your argument?
1: Oh, yeah. So I looked at uh, cultural history during the Cold War. And what I did was I looked at how uh, fashion magazines encouraged women to go overseas and sort of uh, behave well. So the idea was that women could, especially rich women, um, could go overseas and help stimulate the European economy after World War II, but they could also give people a good image of, of the United States after the war. And it isn't that the United States needed to build its reputation, but in certain areas like France and um, Great Britain, they did have to kind of sell the Marshall Plan, if you will. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times fashion magazines bought into this. I I never was able to connect whether there was like a government intervention in this, but fashion magazines and popular culture at large was able to kind of help. Encourage women to go overseas as tourists and behave really well and by by fashion and help stimulate the economy, but also build a good reputation and so to do that, I looked at uh, four women and uh, two of whom were Lee Radziwill and Jackie Kennedy and then um, they had two good friends named Susan Mary Alsop and Marietta Tree. Both of whom, or all of whom, went over overseas after the war. Susan Mary also, in particular, she she ended up becoming a diplomatic historian. But she was married to an ambassador in uh, London, and he got very sick, so she ended up taking over kind of the ambassadorship informally. And I studied her, and I studied Marietta Tree, who later who later went on to work for Adlai Stevenson. And she also worked for the United Nations as a representative. So they ended up kind of using their connections to get into power, but they they helped to kind of rebuild after the war. So the fashion industry was was one of the few industries that was still okay in France and Great Britain Mm -hmm. after World War Two. The, the French were able to maintain the fashion industry because the Germans really wanted their wives to be able to buy French couture. Mm. So when the French invaded Paris, they kept those fashion the fashion houses that would work in that capacity. Some of them just closed up shop and said, we're not working with Nazis. Some did, and that's not to say they were collaborators. They just, they stayed open and they were able to resist in other ways, but- Well, they got to eat. Yeah, exactly. You have to eat, but they also did interesting things I'm just learning about now. They they were able to re- weave like resistance, messages into belts and they they mm-hmm. did kind of cool little acts of resistance throughout the war i mean some collaborated certainly like coca chanel she collaborated but anyway they they had not been destroyed uh, during the war, because the Germans didn't think they were essential. So they didn't really go after them. But they stayed open in Paris, they, the wool manufacturing in London was able to stay open because those factories weren't necessarily bombed, although they really should have been because they provided clothing for soldiers during the war. Mm-hmm. So those stayed open. And then they almost immediately after the war uh, ended, just about immediately started showing collections again. And so fashion magazines really encouraged women to buy French, uh, buy British. You would think it would be like buy American, but at that point in time, it was very, go over, buy from the collections, buy British fabrics. and these companies advertise heavily in the U.S. as well. Yes. Um, then it spread to Italy and Japan. And that was that was really interesting to, to study as well, because those fashion industries helped to get the economies going there as well. So I was able to kind of work it all together because I started out at a museum. And one of the things that attracted me, I worked in fashion public relations. Sorry, just to go back to the beginning. One of the things that attracted me to the museum was that they had a really cool costuming program. So they did and I didn't know that was a thing. You could do costumed re- uh, reenactments and, and mm-hmm. costumed interpretation. They, they had a costumer who uh, kitted us all out with the full thing, yeah. <laughs> corset, you know, undergarments, everything. And we gave costumed uh, tours. And I didn't know that was a thing that you could do at a museum. So that was really fun. And it was a volunteer job. But then I ended up asking them if I could just come work for them. I mean, I was young, and so mm-hmm. it's was kind of brash at the time. So I just, <laughs> just look, I, I really want to work for you. So what can you do? And so they created a position for me, which was <laughs> nice. quite lovely. Yeah, it was good. So I ended up actually being a communications director there for a while. And then that was when I was applying to school as well. And they knew I was going to school. So it was kind of a nice little temporary gig. But yeah, I was able to combine it because I knew I like, I really fell in love with diplomatic history at JMU. And that was an area I didn't. I didn't really know much about history at all. I knew the facts, but I didn't know what fields you could go into. So I went pretty much brand new. And when I started exploring the fields, diplomatic history just stuck out to me because I like fashion and I really like the inner workings of... Diplomacy, which is a lot of gossip and a lot of—it uh, really is. It, it's it's is. amazing, You're right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's a lot of like people interacting with each other and how can they get deals done below the table. And I, I really like that aspect of it. So, and then the military history kind of comes naturally as an extension of that to me because I mean the idea is to avoid military action, right? But right. you know, it's once you get in. Um, diplomacy helps get you out, I suppose. So I thought that was kind of interesting, too. I liked the intersectionism, intersectionality of it, mm-hmm. if that's the word. Yeah, it all kind of came together really well, actually. <laughs> I was I was pleased. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool yeah. project. Yeah, it was pretty fun. It was good.
0: Great. And so you mentioned before that you are currently working as a historian for the federal government. And so when you were wrapping up your grad school degree, how did you approach the job market What did you do that helped to get you into that federal position?
1: Uh, Well, honestly, it was quite luck. Um, So I had finished all my coursework and I happened to be walking by one day an open room and they were having open interviews for the Air Force History Program. And I did not... I didn't know that that was going on. I didn't even know that was a job that you could do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone pulled me aside and said, hey, you do this. They're having these open interviews. You really should throw your resume in the hat. And I said, I don't know, know. I can't. I'm not done yet. And they said it doesn't matter. It's an internship. So I threw my resume in and I got an interview the next day. Right after the interview, they just basically said, Hey, do you want to come to Colorado? And I said, Well sure. (laughs) I wouldn't. So I figured, all right, I'll finish my dissertation out there. So and and I I have to preface this by saying one thing with history jobs is if you're willing to move you can you can get there, I think. Yeah. I grew up in an army family, so I will move pretty much at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. So you know, but you don't have to do that. But anyway, they they had asked me to come out and I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. How it worked is the Air Force had an internship program. It was called PALACE Acquire and PALACE is an acronym. I'm not sure if that exists anymore, but what you did was you started out for a three-year program and it is paid. They started you out as a as a GS-7, and GS stands for government service, you start out as a seven and then within three years you move up to an 11 and you get trained there at a major command or a MAGCOM. You train in that three years to be, um, work at either a major command or a wing level. And so what I did after that was, well, what I did was, sorry, for the three years, I worked at a major command in, in Colorado Springs, which was Space Command. Uh, worked there. I learned how to write the Air Force histories. I learned about the whole program and they have, they really have a lot of options. They have museum studies. They have um, you know, just regular histories. You can write, you can do um, academic histories if you like, academic studies. Uh, and then I ended up leaving for, I took a leave of absence for uh, about a year so I could finish up my dissertation and and graduate and whatnot and then I ended up going down to Keesler Air Force Base to they asked me to come back and so I went to Keesler Air Force Base to be a wing historian down at the 84th training uh, training wing and so what you do there is you work as you basically are the base historian I mean they don't call it that but you're you're kind of um, you work as a historian for the base you interact with a lot of, of retirees in the community you write annual histories, and then you preserve artifacts as they get them from there. So I did that for quite a while. And I moved to uh, Andrews Air Force Base up in DC because they had an archivist position open. So it was it was a combination archivist historian. And I really wanted to learn how to get that archive section down. Um, That's been and that's been very useful, actually. uh, Because with Air Force history, and, and I think with all DOD level historians, you kind of have to do everything. So you need to be a curator. You need to be an archivist. You need to know how to write. You need know, to you know how to research. Uh, you need to know how to do presentations. And, and I think that's what appealed to me. But coming up here was to work for a major command again and working as the Air National Guard archivist. And I did that for a couple of years, and then a position at Customs and Border Protection opened up as their chief historian. And I wanted to get some supervisory experience, so I applied for it just kind of on the fly. I really did not think I was qualified for it, to be honest. And I didn't think that they would even interview me. (laughs) So I would say, if if there's any advice, just go for it, whatever, you know, anytime someone you see a job that you think you might like, just go for it. Uh, so yeah, so I applied with that and it turns out to have been kind of a nice combination because it is a really small office. We have three people, but we handle everything. So I can do curate curatorial work, I do archive work, I do supervisory work, I do writing, and and it kind of all came together here which was nice. So it turns out that a lot of my training in, you know, previous other jobs worked worked really well in combination here. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's kind of, sorry, that's kind of a long version of how I got there. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So you basically got into the, um, got into the government work through the internship. Is that normally the way people would go into this, that type of career, or do they tend to go through the more standardized application process through the. USA jobs website or how, how does, was that the norm or, or, or what is Uh, Oh
1: yeah. I do not think that's the norm. I think that the internships are few and far between it these days. So that was back in 2005 when I first applied. Um, I think, and I had to go through USA jobs too. So you still have to apply for everything. Um, because the way USA jobs work is that every, every job has to be open to the public if it's, well, depending, I mean, there's, there's qualification for that, but you, so I applied through USA jobs, but yeah, that one was pure. I, I won't lie. That was pure, pure luck. I, I happened <laughs> to be walking by, but yeah, I think most people get into the government through the, um, through the government system, which is, which is USA And, do you want me to go into a little detail about how you go through that process?
0: It okay. wouldn't hurt. I mean, we don't need, don't need to get bogged down in too much detail. But basically, yeah, just where, you know, the site. And basically, if you have any thoughts on... Because I've applied for a few jobs to USAJobs.gov and never heard back on anything. And so it, it, it yeah. feels like one of those things where it seems like there's things you should know about that website. Right, or right. <laughs> it's since they, I'm sure they go through like screening processes and all that. So I've never really been clear on how do you make yourself stand out in when you've got a very standardized application? Like It
1: is. Yeah, it is really hard. And I would say that it's, it's talking to people. Um, It's like any job, really. I think it's connections and that, that can be really frustrating. So yeah, the USA jobs process can be very um, it feels like your resume is going to a black hole and yeah, and I think that's a common complaint. I don't think that's something I'm i am the only one saying. Uh, what you do is you basically, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, you you set up a resume within the system and it, it basically matches you. So anytime you apply for a job, you would type in, let's say you want to apply for a historian job or a curator job. Those are the two categories I would go for as a history major. But you could also look up archivists. And then the other one I would look up is writer editor, because sometimes those have to do with history and they're not mm-hmm. they're not always qualified properly. Different agencies have different history programs and they don't always know what a historian does. So you might be mm-hmm. we're the only three historians for the entire agency. DHS doesn't even have a historian. That's the Department of Homeland Security. And mm-hmm. each agency within has one or two historians depending on the strength of their program. But They really, a lot of people don't, and that's no shade to my program or anything. They just, a lot of people don't know what a historian does, but they know they need one. So they'll set that up and they might not categorize it properly. So be really flexible in what you're looking for, but you, you set up a resume and then you do a keyword search. And once you set up your resume and you apply for the job, they give you like a list of questions, right. To go through. And those determine how qualified you are for the position and answer those on, you know, I think people get a little nervous about answering them honestly, but really mm-hmm. you have to, because it has to be backed up by your resume. So they give you a list of questions. You either make or don't a certification list. And what that means is basically that your name is going to be passed along to the hiring official. You may or may not hear about that. You you may not hear back on it. And that can be really frustrating. hmm what I found useful is treating it like a regular job. I will always include a cover letter. I will always follow up if I can. If they give a name and number, which sometimes they do, of a hiring official, I think it can backfire and be annoying, but I do it anyway. Because even <laughs> if you just make that person-to-person contact, it helps. They know who you are, and you never know who will know you for later, because that's right. that has actually helped me. Someone said, ah, you applied for this job, but we have... You know, we had someone in mind, but we have this other thing. Maybe you should apply for that. So you never know, you know, and I would say for USA Jobs, the process can be a little frustrating. But talking to people as much as you can, if you can make contact with someone in the office where you want to work, I find people are usually, as long as it's really politely framed, I find people are usually very willing to talk to people interested in their agency because they get excited about their jobs, too. They want to talk about their job, and usually people are pretty encouraging. But getting your name out there, and if you are interested in a job in the federal government, joining the Society for Historians in the federal government is um, an important thing to do. That's the SFHG
0: Oh, I didn't realize that was an organization. That's good to know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful because they apply. They often advertise jobs in the federal government and it's just a good networking thing and it's nationwide. So it's not just, you know, in one area they have everywhere they have meetings and it's it's quite helpful in getting through that sort of paperwork of going through USA jobs. And the thing I think with USA jobs that can be frustrating is you often will not hear back from people. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep going. And I tell people to keep applying because for every 10 jobs, I mean, I think that's the job market anyway. For every 10 jobs, you might hear about one. But it is, yeah, I think that's a common complaint. It's very frustrating to apply because you really very rarely do you get contact back. And it can seem,
0: yeah. Yeah, I've also wondered about, because with federal jobs, I mean, there's always going to be the budget constraints and and budgeting constraints yes. and all that. And I imagine a lot of the yes. probably just disappear because of, um, you know, funding problems or, you know, maybe not problems. Yeah. The appropriations yeah. went down that year or something like that. So. The yeah. uh, what I was saying before that I applied for some I I, mm-hmm. I I believe that the the ones that I was that I'm thinking about right now anyway I th- I think mm-hmm. those jobs just kind of evaporated over time because of budget cuts and all of that and I think yeah, yeah,
1: no, I, I never yeah. heard
0: back but maybe that's yeah. just what I tell myself to sleep better at night <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> no 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 I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong at all actually that happens all the time yeah they they will. And it happens and it's happened in our office. It's happened in every office. They would they would uh, collect resumes and then uh, we can't hire for that job. Right. But, you know, I think people forget the key point of, well, we should probably contact the people who are on the list. <laughs>
0: right. um,
1: and that's, you know, I think that just happens. It's unfortunate. That's. It's uh, also
0: uh, it's also not you.
1: No, no.
0: Very rarely will you ever hear back if you are not in the. Right. Don't make the short list. Right. Usually, you never hear back at all anyway. So it's it's not right. just no, a, no. a federal problem. Yeah. It's just um um it's
1: no it's I a think pretty that's, constant problem yeah.
0: across the board. I think so. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's yeah.
0: cool. Thanks for the explanation for the for the sure. uh, hiring process there. So yeah. So now that you've gotten through the hiring process and you're in you're you're into the career here, what you know, what does a daily a day in the life look like in your position? What types of yeah. You know what types of research do you do? What types of reports slash? I mean, what's the product that you create? You mentioned before that there's annual uh, histories that you did back in in the Air Force mm-hmm. days, but what 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 are the types of things that you do as in your current position?
1: Sure, sure. So the Air Force one, just to start with that, they they tend to be much more research oriented. Uh, for a wing historian, well, really any historian, the key for Air Force is always producing an annual history. And what I would do on a daily basis there would be go to the meetings with the commander because you want to be there to document things. It is kind of like being a reporter, to be perfectly honest, but you want to document things as they go on. And the key there would be to research key decisions because the idea for Air Force histories is that you want a record of how decisions were made while they were being made so that someone can go back and look at the report for that year and then say, oh, how did we handle this? Uh how can we handle it better in the future? Or what can we learn to handle it in the future better later on? Uh, what can we use to apply to today, rather? Uh, for my job currently, I, or for Air Force, I, I spent much of my day researching and going to meetings, which sounds really boring, but it actually <laughs> was really interesting. <laughs> um, you get to learn a lot about high level decision making. And I, I also was really fortunate to have good commanders. So, and, and also with Air Force, you get to deploy, which is kind of cool. Uh, so I got to deploy to uh, Qatar to be a historian for the 379th Air Expeditionary uh, Wing right there. And, and that was like a six-month de- or four-month, sorry, four-month deployment. And that was a lot of fun. You, get, you do the the wing histories there. And those are like you do a monthly report rather than annual. So it's a pretty fast pace. Um, and you can look at the missions that go in and out. It's, it's really cool, actually. It was a lot of fun. They, you get like a bird's eye view of what's going on around the world. And when I came here, I think this position has been unique because it really kind of was up to me to create. They really have a very new history program. They've only had one other historian in my position before. And before that, they did not have a history program. What we started out with, I have one employee who is kind of our chief historian, if you will. She started out with customs uh, when it was its separate agency. She started out 60 years ago, so she has been there 60 years, and she essentially, and this isn't to sound negative about my agency, when CBP was formed in 2003, uh, one of the problems was you're combining all these different federal agencies that had their own histories and owned, I don't know how to say, they had their own backgrounds, and people had a lot of pride in their agencies, and you had to combine them into CBP that was one face, and so they they said a lot, you know, get rid of such and such, get rid of something that says customs, and people took that to mean everything, get rid of everything customs well, customs goes back to seventeen eighty nine so you you really should not do that. My colleague, what she did was go around from office to office and um collect things. And then that was really lucky because when they when it came time to celebrate their two hundred and twenty fifth anniversary, she had of customs she had a lot of the things that had been collected and was able to do a little museum and I'm going a little bit out of chronological order here, I'm That's sorry, right. but she was able to put together a museum and then when customs and border protection was formed, she had the basis of a pro of of a history archive that she had started, and so that really forms the foundation of the archive we have um right now. And then what they wanted to do was because they had that little museum, people got really interested in that. Ah, we'd like to do displays. So they hired a curator to start gathering artifacts from different offices and different field offices. And so we do have like a small artifact collection as well. And we do small displays throughout the building and then we'll advise on them in different locations. What, what I do generally is supervisory work is kind of a lot of paperwork. So that. Sounds really dull as I describe it. It it is not. It is very interesting. They I do a lot of supervisory work in terms of paperwork, but that that's not the majority of my day. The majority of my day I spend doing research on customs and border protection. Where we right now and again, my I just have to preface this: my views don't represent the views of my agency. Um, Yeah, and and if you become a federal historian, you will say that a lot. That is your (laughs) you have to say that before everything, but. Yeah. So what I do on a daily basis is we get a lot of information requests from the public in, particularly right now about border protection, because, you know, we're in the news a lot. Mm-hmm. And when we get public information requests, I'll go to the archive and research those. And, you know, they can be really anything. I've researched movie roles. We have I've I've researched uh, for people relatives who worked for customs or who were border patrol agents. We research people for, um, since it's a law enforcement agency, they have, they have a valor memorial of people who have died in the line of duty. So we research those. And then anything for the website, we have a website at uh, cbp.gov. If you're interested in learning about the history of the agency, they they have, we do research for that. And then we work with other history offices within Department of Homeland Security. So um, immigration USCIS is what that's called. Mm -hmm. We work with a lot of different agencies uh, within DHS, but I would say immigration is probably the one we work most closely with and Coast Guard. uh, Those are the two, the two other agencies, but yeah, anything we get in, we research photographs, Um, any artifact we get in, we have to research its provenance. And so it could be, it's, it's kind of different every day. It really is just, you know, and, and then if somebody is is giving a speech they want to know something historic for that that day or 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 the history of a particular event that they're discussing maybe it's a trade event or maybe it's maybe it's something with the wall or, or whatever they want to know about that we give them a history of that and that that's really interesting too so we get we get a lot of varied information requests um, on my own I do some I do research into fashion so'm I'm, I'm I try to do some stuff on my own too. And I'm, I'm interested in intellectual property because that's one thing customs tries to protect Mm -hmm. and then um, fashion fakes. I find that that's really interesting because so one thing customs tries to protect from coming into the country are are fake fashions and that's a huge problem. So they'll get, and they'll get like a Nike t-shirt that's, or, or, or a super bowl ring or anything anything you could think of that someone can produce fake it, it is produced mm-hmm. a chanel bag anything so i like to research that because it's tied into a lot of areas it's tied into human trafficking and it's tied into um, illegal drugs a lot of the money if you buy a handbag on the street that is a fake chanel or a fake louis vuitton or something like that those that money does not go to good purposes that goes to illegal purposes, but it's also a copyright infringement on the design. So that's, that's kind of what I'm researching on my own at work Mm -hmm. as well, because it's sort of related. So
0: in in this position is, do you end up dealing with a lot of, uh you know classified material, or is this all public public information that you're dealing with, or is it some common uh yeah
1: yeah yeah it's all it's all public for uh for air Force, yes, we did deal with classified information, and you you do have to have a a security clearance for air force history jobs and and I would say if you can you know be prepared for a security clearance for any government job really, but Uh, For my job, I could, in theory, research classified information, but I do not much for this. It's it's all public. Yeah, Uh, just because we're such a public facing agency. So
0: yeah, and I imagine, especially with you kind of alluded to it a few minutes ago, but the you know the modern issues with immigration and uh, like you mentioned the wall and all of that, I imagine that could. I mean, your agency certainly is of, you know, it, it's pretty, sort word I'm looking for. Um, it's in the news, <laughs> I guess we could say.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so sure.
0: Do you find yourself getting wrapped up in all of that? Or is that something where the, the agency has, I mean, I, I imagine they have their spokespeople and all of that. But do you find yourself kind of wrapped up in all of that, kind of the newsmaking part of the of the issue right now?
1: Well, I'll I'll have to say, luckily I'm not, um, we are, we are so small and, and I'll, I won't lie. Most people don't know the history program exists within our agency. That's one of my (laughs) jobs is to kind of try to say, here's what we can do for you. Here's how we can help. But right now I'm not going to lie. That's a nice thing because it, it kind of leaves us out of the, the, we can't, and of course, government, um, employees, we we can't be on a political side anyway, but the, you know, no, I, for us, not really, because what we do is so inherently apolitical. We report yeah. and, and I don't always report nice things. I, I won't lie because the history of the country with regards to immigration isn't always pleasant. Right. So I work for, technically I fall under the office of public affairs, but what is nice is that I'm never pressured to do public relations, if that makes sense. So if a leader asks me, hey, what's the history of immigration in this area? I'm, I'm very free to tell him or her, here is what happened. And, and it's not a nice picture. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. So I can, yeah, I can be pretty honest about that. But I don't actually, the nice thing is I don't get wrapped up in the, the political thing because I really can't. Um, well,
0: it makes sense. You're not, you're not a policy making arm of the agency. You're just reporting on the stuff that's happened in the past. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We just report, and and they have spokespeople as well, so they're they're pretty careful. And that's not just my agency. With with any federal job I've had, you you have to clear uh, any media appearance through public affairs. And I would say that if I've been asked to speak, it's really about my job as a historian, as opposed to anything with to do with the agency mm-hmm. so i i did some radio shows for Keesler, and that was more about my job as as Keesler historian and then Keesler's history which which dated back to world war ii so that's the air force base down in biloxi and it, w- yeah I, sp- I, t- I spoke about the history of the base or i can speak about the history of the agency and its policies but i i really don't get my opinion on them or anything like that so it doesn't get political which right. is which is quite nice. I can't like about
0: that. Yeah, that seems kind of like an ideal situation to be in because you don't want to be, you don't want to be talked about in the news.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. 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 No.
0: <laughs> no. Okay. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds like an interesting job. Um,
1: yeah. And, and
0: you were saying that the, there are most agencies have these types of offices in them. They're yeah. not often very yeah. well known. Um, and no. I don't like it or not, I mean, they may not be as influential as we would like them to be. I mean, uh, I would right, I, right. I, I think you should be one of the most influential pe- people in your department. But I understand yeah, probably not the way it works out. Yeah,
1: um, I would like that too. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah,
0: um,
1: yeah. No, I mean, I would say um, I have never heard of an agency that does not have a historian. I didn't know that coming in, though. Yeah. So you think typically of. Of agencies like Smithsonian, they they have historians, um, but Department of State has a major history program. The military, so the DOD, every branch of the military has major history programs. Mm-hmm. And the Army is probably the biggest. I would say Air Force is probably next. And then Marines and the Navy um, are, are probably the smallest, which is surprising because Marines are really, really into their history. Yeah. Uh, but they have wonderful... Wonderful history programs, and they're not just located in Washington D.C. They're everywhere, and uh, you can also do archaeology with the federal government. Um, FEMA, in particular, uh, FEMA hires lots of archaeologists mm-hmm. because so if you're into that aspect of history, they need them for um, for disaster sites. So they hire quite a lot, and. I, w- I would say, oh, National Park Service has historians, um, Department of Interior, I mean, almost any, gosh, yeah, almost every agency. And that wasn't something I knew starting out. I didn't know that was a career option. Um, yeah. And then when I got in, yeah, I thought it was just military history. And then I realized, oh, all these agencies have historians, even if it's small. Some are big, some are mm-hmm. not, but Yeah. Yeah. And
0: do these positions, I imagine they probably tend to get filled by people that are going to stay there for their career, or do you see a lot of turnover? In I know you have kind of a limited view since you only work for a couple agencies, but do you see a lot of turnover in those positions, or do people tend to stay there for life?
1: I would say it depends. So for Air Force, because we have, there were so many bases, there was a lot of turnover, not within the. Um, history program itself but people would move from base to base mm. or uh, and that's not because you're stationed there that's just because maybe a better job opened up or it was a nice location and you wanted to try this uh they have overseas locations so those were those are always hot yeah. um, hot properties yeah <laughs> they you can go to england or germany mm-hmm. or whatever and those are yeah those are nice places to go italy you yeah, know that's a good yeah. one. and dod or or air army as well so Army's a little different because you travel with, you can, there is a part where you can travel with the unit that you're stationed mm-hmm. with. Um, and these are all civilian positions, mind you, but you can actually travel with that unit. So if if I recall correctly, I, I don't want to misspeak on Army, but I believe that their history program is that you can do that, but you all also work, you know, wherever the base is. I would say there is not a heck of a lot of turnover, but there is once you get in, if that makes sense. So once you get into the program, you can move from agency to agency a little more easily because you start to establish contacts and someone will say, hey, there's a curatorial position at Library of Congress opening up. Do you want to apply? Or the turnover is high-ish, but not turnover as a historian leaving history. It's more to pursue different Different aspects of the job, if that so,
0: sense. yeah. So a lot of people once they get into the federal HR system, they tend to stay within that system. Mm-hmm. Even though if they're maybe shifting from agency to agency, but they're probably not leaving yes. very often. Leaving the HR yes, ecosystem, whatever say. you want to call it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, I would say. I would say. I mean, there's turnover in terms of people go to academia or, or something like that. If they if they find a, a good uh, fit there, then then I would say that's where people go to. But I like the federal government because then I can teach on the side, and so I teach as as you know I teach for SNHU, and and that allows me to do that as part of my professional responsibilities. I do it outside of work, obviously, but it's it's still considered a leadership building thing, and they they do encourage me to teach. I, I feel very free to say, hey, I'm going to take two courses this term, or. or mm-hmm yeah and that that's been quite good because you kind of get the best of both worlds for me i don't have to worry i can adjunct and i can i can teach and interact with the students but i don't have to do the tenure thing if i don't want to i could you know i suppose i could go for that if i wanted but um but i get the nice um security and difference of and a government job is secure that is one of the attractions it is pretty secure it's difficult um I, I don't want to imply that people don't get fired if they're doing a bad job or whatever, but, but it's just, it's a stable job. And you're not, I, I don't feel, um, because you mentioned budget cuts. I don't ever feel anxious about, Ooh, they're going to cut my program entirely. I would say more how jobs get cut is if you leave, they don't fill yeah, okay. it. So that's, that's more how, how that works. If, if that makes sense. But once you're in, I, I feel like it's, it's a, Stable job you get, and it's not. There are ter- times where it's high pressure, but it's not high pressure in the sense of oh, I have to worry about applying for tenure or I have to make you know I have to make this promotion or anything like that. I I feel like it's it's really pleasant actually. <laughs> <if> that, <laughs> it's just a really pleasant working environment. I love teaching and I like academia as well, so I don't mean to knock that, but. It's just a pleasant place to work. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. great. I work with great people. <laughs> it's, uh,
0: I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a civil service job. It's not a, you guys are, you're not political yeah, exactly. appointees, so you don't have to worry about the, no, you no, know, when a new no. administration comes to town, it's not like you're going to get fired and get replaced by that person's appointees. You are, you're, you're no, part of the yeah. civil service bureaucracy. And so you're there to stay.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I've been very lucky, everybody and everywhere I've worked, uh, really just great hardworking people who really care about their agency and that's that's anywhere I work and it just makes it a really pleasant environment to work in because because you have a bunch of people who know what their mission is and 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 they care about their jobs and they care about the history of their agency. That that actually has been something that's been a pleasant surprise anywhere, not just CBP, but uh with people I know who work for Library of Congress or Smithsonian everybody just really deeply cares about the history of their agency. And they're very proud of it, no matter where mm. they work. I, I know people and that's, that's been such a pleasant surprise. So it's,
0: it's, it's nice to be, be, hear people happy with their jobs. That's all. To
1: hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Before we go, do you have anything you'd like to recommend to the people listening in that's history related today?
1: yeah sure so it's kind of off the wall but i i saw this movie over christmas called um it's a movie by peter jackson who did the hobbit Mm -hmm. movies and it's called uh they shall not grow old and what he did was for the 100th anniversary of world war one he was invited by the i believe it was the imperial war museum to do a documentary on world war one and he was given access to all their recordings um all their interviews they did a series of oral histories with still living veterans in the 1960s so he used all of that and the only requirement in his interview he said the only requirement is that he kind of do something different with it so he created a movie about the british soldiers experience in world war one because i think his grandparent grandfather and uncle were soldiers if i'm quoting that correctly and he was able to uh, restore uh, the date of the film and colorize it and also put it into three d and it is incredibly cool and plus i don 't know if the Imperial War Museum knew this when they hired him, but he 's a huge World War one buff, so he would go and if they needed you know if they needed sound for let 's say artillery, he would just go to his collection of artillery <laughs> and say, let's say let 's start and he has a huge collection of World War One artillery or if they needed a color for a uniform he would say something very modest about it. Oh, well, I had a uniform. Well, as it turns out, he's got an entire <laughs> collection of <laughs> of British wow. uniforms from World War One. Yeah, it's amazing. He's got just storage, storage houses of, of things and he's very modest about it. But I, I'm not entirely sure if they knew that. But yeah, it's really cool. So they, they uh, colorized the film and then put it into 3D and they were able to get lip readers to read because the film was yeah. silent. So they were able to get lip readers to read the the words to read the people what people were saying and they had actors who were able to repeat it so you could see what the people were saying oh, wow. and and hear it as well they had actors who would who would do the voices it was really very incredible and so if you ever get the chance to watch it it it's it's definitely well worth it and it kind of uh reinvigorated my interest in military history i was i forgot because i'd gotten I, I won't lie i got a little tired of it after a while and i thought oh, I don't do this anymore um, and then i saw that movie and i thought okay i, I really do love this totally. <laughs> this is the coolest thing i've ever seen so that, it's that's amazing awesome. get yeah the
0: i remember seeing yeah, some promotional materials for it oh, when it first maybe. came out i think it, it came around around the holidays yeah. last year i believe
1: yeah and, yeah i took my whole family uh, for christmas awesome. and inflicted them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: that's cool yeah i'll keep an eye out for that uh my, my recommendation is it's not really a specific book or anything. It's just that if you go to your local library, find books that were written or find a book that was written on the specific neighborhood or town that you live in and go to that shelf on the, on the, in the library and find it. So that way you can see all of the other books that have been re- written about that topic Because you can find just some of the most amazing, really old books that haven't, you know, nobody's checked out of the library in decades, but they're, they're still on the shelf and you can just find some amazing things in there. Like I did that, um, for, I I moved to a new suburb of Columbus and, um, I went into the local library and just found the suburb name and, and just found the spot on the shelf. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's only five or six books, but, you know, as you kind of move along the shelf in either direction, you'll start to kind of almost zoom out of the map, so to speak. So you'll start looking at County histories and um, regional histories and state histories and all of that. And since the, since local history in some ways, it feels like it's kind of fallen out of favor in recent decades as we focus on larger issues like, you know, race relations or politics, that kind of thing. We just don't see as much local history except for things like those, the Library of America, those um, oh, Arcadia Press images of America. That's the series I'm thinking about. Those are the, the only local ones that I've seen published lately. So generally, the stuff that's lo- on local history is generally older. And so it's just for me anyway, it's really fun to read through books that were written before, say, 1960, because they had such a different v- view of what history writing was all about. It's much more uh, literary, um, whereas we focus modern historians, we tend to get specialized and we and tend to, you know, the cliche is that we've that we. There's a lot of jargon and all that, but in the back in the day, it was much more of a narrative. Let's tell a story about all of this. And so, if you can find these books that are written on your local town, that are they tend to have that narrative approach to it. And so, they'll start talking about these people that would never make it into history books today because they didn't really have anything special to say. It's just that you know, that's the guy that was living on that street corner at that time. And so that, you know, our hero was walking by that person and said, hi. And so they're not, and so these old books, a lot of times they're not afraid to insert dialogue that there's no way could possibly have existed, but (laughs) it tells, it helps (laughs) to tell the story. So they put words in people's mouths and all of that. So, you know, there's, there's books like the story of Ohio, which is all about the really cool stuff that random history, random Ohioans have done since the beginning of time. Um, circuit riders that were uh, judges and, uh, you know, people working in the steel industry and all of that, that they just, they just tell these stories. And in the, in the process of telling the stories, (laughs) you kind of get a sense of what Ohio was all about. Now, reading them, you realize, of course, you're not getting the full story because they're focusing only on the people that people thought were interesting back in the 1940s and 1950s, which tend to be, you know, white males. But um, the storytelling is usually really funny, really interesting. They pick up on weird quirks. Um, I was reading one on uh, the city of Westerville, Ohio, which was um, the dry capital of the world for a while. That was its motto <laughs> of itself, and um, the the city got got founded by this guy who became well known because he could throw an axe across over. The, over a barn, and <laughs> people just that became the basis for his greatness <laughs> was that he could throw an axe. <laughs> so that's the stuff that made it into those Amazing. types of books because it was a weird little anecdote or anecdote that uh, that people picked up on. So that's my advice. It's just, it's, it's a very kind of meta. <laughs> Suggestion, I suppose, but go find the (laughs) library shelf for your that that holds the books on your local neighborhood community and just start flipping through them and looking for cool stories because you're going to find some really weird old stuff that'll be funny to tell all your friends about. And that's that. (laughs) So, all right. (laughs) So, thank you for joining me today, Susan. Sure.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Susan Dawson, I'm Rob Denning. I'll see you in a couple weeks.